Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Today. All right. Well, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 20 is where we find ourselves as we're working our way through Genesis. We'll be in Genesis for another few weeks. Then we're going to take a break. And then this fall, we're going to look at the most important chapter ever written, Romans chapter 8. And so we'll do Romans 8 for the fall, and then we'll get back into Genesis, Lord willing, sometime next year and finish up Genesis over the course of time. Today, we find ourselves in another valley, so to speak, of Abraham's life, where this father of the faith that we have been following since Genesis chapter 12, we see these great peaks and valleys in his life, And again today, for the second time, we see Abraham in fear and cowardice, this great man of God who God has revealed himself to, has sovereignly chosen to be the man through which he will create a people so that this people can be a a light to the nations. This great man, again, for the second time, lies about his, his wife. And so if you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use the one in front of you in the rack, in the chair in front of you. Again, if you don't have a Bible, as we say every Sunday, you're welcome to keep that Bible. And you can find Genesis chapter 20 on probably page 14 or 11 or 12, depending on which copy you have there. We'd love for you to open it up, put it on your lap, follow along. We'll have the scriptures on the screen, but I think it's better for you. We actually do that just for people that uh, may just kind of have no familiarity with the Bible. I think it's actually better for you to, to try and follow along as best you can in the main text that we're preaching through in your own Bible. It will help you become just more sort of comfortable with your own Bible. I am in the middle of switching Bibles. I have a new Bible, and I, I am, it's like muscle confusion. All of the familiar visual places are not in this Bible, and it's just kind of weird for me until I break this baby in, kind of like a glove, you know, when you're a kid, and you leather it up, put a ball in it, wrap it in a belt, and stick it underneath your mattress for a couple weeks, get that baby nice and soft, so I'm, st- I'm in the process of doing that. I haven't put leather on my Bible, like uh, oil, but I might just do that. Wrap it around in a belt, stick it underneath my mattress. Okay, I'm wasting time. Let me pray, and then we're going to work through this chapter. I want to give you my outline, which is really three questions that we've talked about before when we read the Old Testament. Three great questions to ask. I'm going to give them to you at the beginning. Then we're going to read through the chapter rather quickly, and then we'll come back around and answer these three questions. Okay, so here are the three questions. What do we learn about ourselves as we read this chapter about another failure in Abraham's life? What do we learn about ourselves, about human nature, about what it means to be a broken human? Secondly, what do we learn about God? That's the most important of all pursuits, knowing God and who he is, and in light of that, responding to our creator. What do we learn about God? And then thirdly, What do we learn about God's plan of redemption in Christ? The Old Testament, friends, is pointing forward to Jesus. The Gospels explain his life in the New Testament. And then the rest of the New Testament is pointing backwards to Christ's work on the cross and who we are and who creation is in light of what Jesus has done. Let me pray, and then we're going to read this chapter. And as I pray, pray with me for God to show us his beauty. Pray for us to see wonderful things. Pray for people that are in this room that are unbelievers, that God would draw them. Pray for Christians to be stirred and convicted and edified and humbled. And pray for our world. We live in turbulent times. So let's take some time not to just make the prayer the little, the little, the little thing we do before we get into the sermon. Let's pray. Let's be God's people and let's pray because Jesus has, has gone to the cross and has opened up a new and living way and has now poured out his spirit on his people, and has now given us his spirit, the Holy Spirit, the mighty rushing wind, the spirit, the presence of God is here now in his people, inviting us to pray, to lean forward in the foxhole, and to not just be lazy Christians in the Bible Belt. Let's pray and ask God to do great things this morning. Pray with me. Father, as we come to you now, We, uh, Lord, we admit that our world is a turbulent place. We pray, God, I I see so many short haircuts in this room. I see so many young men and women that have 
served our nation, that are serving our nation, that are in this congregation, that very likely in the coming months and years will again be deployed to dangerous places, to do dangerous things, to dangerous people. Lord, we thank you for them and we pray that you would protect them. God, give our our political leaders wisdom, our military leaders wisdom about what to do in this new problem arising again in Iraq and Afghanistan. Lord, we pray for the Middle East. We pray for the peace of Israel as she once again is being uh, attacked by these hostile, godless nations around her. We pray, Lord, that you would cease the attacks against Israel. We pray, Lord, that Israel would find her hope not in political recognition or in the fact that she is Jewish, but that you would cause a great revival in Israel and that you would graft back in the Jewish people into the people of God by their faith in Jesus. And we pray for the Arab nations that you would, that you would cause them to, many Arabs, to turn and trust and see Jesus as the true king. We pray for our president. We pray, Lord, that you would convict him of some of his evil policies and that you would change his heart and mind. But yet we do pray for him and we pray for wisdom for him and grace to him. We pray for our city. We pray for the leaders in our town. We pray for other churches in our city. I thank you, Lord, for for Westminster Presbyterian Church and my good friend Mitch McGinnis and St. Andrew's Presbyterian, and my friend Bill Douglas, for Berean Covenant Church, and my brother J.W. Norman, for the Baptist churches in town, for Calvary Baptist, and my friend Jeff Struker there as he preaches the word today, for the Pentecostal churches in our city, for the Methodist churches in our city, for all the churches in our town, although we may have differences doctrinally and secondary matters. Lord, for all of those that are trusting in Christ and believing the gospel, we pray that you would bless them and encourage them and make their ministry today fruitful. And we pray the same for us as we look at your word now, that you would turn our attention away from ourselves and that you would do great things today. Lord, that you would convict and encourage Christians And that you would call to life unbelievers that came into this room with hearts that were dead and hostile. Pray, God, that you would give them the very thing that they need, which is the gift of faith and repentance, so that they are now, because of your sovereign grace, able to turn and trust in Jesus. Lord, would you do these things? And would you give me wisdom? Would you help me to decrease? And would you, by your glory, increase? And as our team travels up the road to Atlanta to go to Uganda, go before them, bless them. Lord, what a privilege to be in your church, part of your people, with your word open on our laps. May we not take it for granted now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, verse 1, chapter 20. So we just ended last week on God judging Sodom and Gomorrah. The judgment of God came down. The righteous judgment of God came down on Sodom and Gomorrah and God, because of his sovereign grace, saved Lot through the prayers of Abraham. Now, chapter 20, verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. Verse 2. Oh, Abraham. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. So this is for the second time. Abraham, out of cowardice and fear, has lied about Sarah being his sister. Now, it's kind of a half-truth because she was actually his half-sister. And we'll see that in just a little bit. But we know what's going on here, friends. He's not trying to get off on a technical. He is lying to save his hide. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, <laughs> imagine being woken up by these words. 
Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. (laughs) Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Verse 6, a really important verse that tells us so much about the power and sovereignty of God. Then God said to him in the dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Friends, God is sovereign over even the willful intentions of a man's heart. God is not a distant watchmaker, as the deists would say, who has made the universe wound it up and then sits back and watches it crumble. No, God is not only transcendent, holy above and other, but he is imminent. Whenever he wants, as Logan read this morning from Psalm 135, did you catch verse 6? He does whatever he pleases. And when he deems fit, he breaks into creation and stops Abimelech from thwarting his promise that a people would come from Abraham. Verse 7, Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Abimelech is a kind of representative of the entire people. Remember when you were a kid and you were playing football and you did something stupid? Maybe you fumbled the ball and the coach made all of you run laps or do sprints or do up-downs and you were like, oh man, you know, you were doing it because the one guy missed the block or fumbled and you're like, why do we all have to be punished for the one? Friends, that is a biblical principle. We all are punished because of the sin of one, Adam. We all now by nature are sinners. And friends, when we object to that and say that's not fair, then we need to carry that same line of reasoning over to the New Testament because we are all made righteous in Christ Jesus because of one, right? So if we object to being part of a whole and being punished as a whole, then we should also object to being, receiving grace because of one. Oh, I could go much longer into that, but let's keep on track. Just a little gospel rabbit trail for you there. So Abimelech, verse 8, rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid, as well they should be. Then Abimelech called Abraham. I mean, don't you think that word got out what just happened in Genesis 19? Like, this is the Abraham who prayed and his, his nephew Lot and God rained down sulfur and fire from heaven. That same God woke you up in the middle of the night and said that if you don't send this girl back to this guy that we're going to get smoked to, do it, Abimelech. These guys are uh, understandably very much afraid. Verse 9, Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, Oh, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech, verse 10, said to Abraham, I love this piercing question. Well, I don't love it. That's not the right word. I, I'm, I'm convicted by this, this piercing question. What did you see that you did this thing? I mean, he could actually ask it in the negative. What, what didn't you see, Abraham? You, you, you didn't see the greatness of God. I mean, you were so small-minded in this situation. What did you see that you did this thing? Verse 11, and Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, friends, take that sentence in. The God who has done incredible, miraculous things for Abraham in the past eight chapters. Abraham has forgotten that. He has control all deleted that from his memory banks. And now he is at a place where he has what looks to be like 
a hostile king, and he forgets everything about his history with God, and he says, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. And then verse 12 is just sort of pathetic. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Doesn't it just read? Just read it a few times. Like, besides, you know, you just, you know your justification is weak, and you just kind of, you know, just trying to get off on a technicality. I mean, it's just, you can feel him shrinking behind himself even as he utters that sort of self-rationalizing sentence. And then, verse 13, he indicts God in a sense. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, you know, I was doing okay until God saved me and put me on a mission. (laughs) And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Friends, that is not good Christ-like masculine leadership, (laughs) to say the least. I don't think I need to expound. Notice, friends, Abraham's guilty and shameful response of rationalization and blame shifting. And contrast that with, with when you've kind of been caught in sin, when you've been caught in your folly, when you've been exposed. Contrast that with, with a picture of true repentance that we see in the life of David in Psalm 51. In addition to reading uh, Rock of Ages this afternoon, go and read Psalm 51, which is a picture of true non-rationalizing, non-blame-shifting, non-self-justifying repentance. Remember the story? In 2 Samuel chapter 12, David is this great king, and he has sinfully taken another man's wife got her pregnant. And then as that man, his captain, was away fighting battles for David's kingdom, he knew that his sin was having the consequence of this lady being pregnant. So he arranges for this captain of his to be put on the front line so that he is going to be killed in battle. So David compounds one horrific sin of adultery and compounds it by arranging for really the murder of this captain of his. And then the prophet Nathan comes to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and offers him this, this sort of picture. And he says, hey, hey, King David, let me tell you a little story. And let, let's let you judge what should happen here. There's this poor man and this rich man. And the poor man has just one tiny little lamb. And the rich man has this huge flock. And then there's this sojourner that comes and comes to the city. And he comes to the rich man's house. And the rich man, instead of taking one of his own from his own herd, says, let's take this poor man's little tiny lamb here and let's sacrifice that lamb and prepare for this, this traveler, this sojourner. And the prophet Nathan says to King David, he says, what should, what should happen in this situation? Well, what do you judge here in this scenario, King David? And King David says, oh, that filthy jerk. I'm paraphrasing now. How can that rich man get away with that? He took from the poor man when he had all of that. Death to that rich man. And the Nathan the prophet looks at King David and he says, King David, you are that man. You are that man. And David, rather than blame shifting and rationalizing and says, well, I'm going to how many well, my father was sister like Abraham did here. He writes Psalm 51 and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. It goes on and on and on. In verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Friends, that is a beautiful, beautiful picture of biblical repentance that we see in the life of David that in this instance we don't see in the life of Abraham. So just a minute ago, I was talking about Abraham not being an example of masculine, Christ-like, selfless 
leadership in his marriage. So maybe some man in this room was convicted of his passivity. And maybe our natural instinct, I know mine is, is to start sort of blaming. Well, you know, if my wife would be doing this, oh, I mean, my job is on It just becomes like Charlie Brown's parents. You know, you ever watch cartoon Charlie Brown's? They never actually say words, it's just wah, 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 wah. Here's the good news, Dad, is that repentance is always the right answer. If you find yourself lacking, just, just repent. Be the best example of repentance that anybody in your home sees. Look, you may not lead the best. You may not know the most about that. You may not make the most money. You may not have your, your kid may not be this or that or the other. You may not have a bumper sticker to put about your child's excellent grades. You know, you may, you may eat too many pizzas and not enough, too much gluten. I don't even know what gluten is. What? I'm 43 years old. I just started hearing about gluten just a couple years ago. If it's so bad, why didn't somebody tell me about it earlier? I mean, all these things that, you know, and we're failing, we're failing, we're failing. Men, listen to me, and women too, but I'm speaking to the men in particular. Be the best example of repentance that anybody in your home or your world knows and sees. And if you do that, if you repent like David and not like Abraham in this situation, you are well on the way to godliness. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, and male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said in verse 15, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. Friends, probably the main point of this chapter is that it is showing that, that, that the promise of God that he made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that through Abraham and his wife, he would give a son, and that through this family that God would create through Abraham would be this family of God's people, the Jewish nation, that then through that Jewish nation would be a light to all the world, that then through that line of the Jewish nation, the Christ, Messiah, would come. That promise of God over the last eight chapters has been in jeopardy because of the folly of man. And next chapter, next Sunday in Genesis 21, we're going to see the promise come to fulfillment where finally a son is born. And the great point, I think one of the great points of this chapter is, is that God will make sure that his promise is fulfilled. And he's very careful to show us, to detail for us, that even though Abimelech took Sarah, that he didn't touch her. And now he's saying, by, by proving it really in the scriptures and to everybody around there, that she is vindicated, I didn't touch her. In the innocence of all those that are with you and before everyone, you are vindicated. I didn't touch her. So that years later, nobody could say, I wonder where Isaac came from. I wonder where Jacob, was he really Abraham's son? No, no. God will preserve his promise in his people. Verse 17, then Abraham prayed to God. And God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore him, they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. All right, well, let's look at these three questions now and conclude by answering these three all-important questions that I think are a great guide to ask yourself as you read the Bible, in particular the Old Testament. What do we learn about ourselves as we see yet another uh, episode of folly in the life of Abraham? I think the first thing we see is that our sin greatly affects others. None of us live in a sort of vacuum, right? Nobody is a man or an island unto himself. Abraham's sin greatly affected Abimelech. So he was cowardly, and Abimelech got woken up in the middle of the night by the creator of the universe. Can you imagine that top, tap on the shoulder? Hey, uh, because of Abraham's cowardice, I am going to blot you off the face of the earth. I mean, that, that'll get you going. You don't need a cup of coffee that day. That will induce adrenaline pumping through your veins. <laughs> Abraham's folly greatly affected Abimelech. 
And Abimelech, had he not obeyed God, his sin of disobedience, which thank God he wasn't for his people, would have greatly affected his people, right? So we don't live on an island. Men are our sin, our neglect, our, our foolishness, our lusts, our self-absorption affects our families and everything around us. Sin greatly affects others. Secondly, we, I think, learn from this that we don't so easily get past old patterns of sin. Right? So this was a problem of Abraham's before. He, at least at this point, is on his way to being sort of a compulsive coward, right? He had done this before. Right after God had spoken to him in Genesis 12, he lied about Sarah being his, his wife. Friends, let's not be so quick to feel like we have arrived in our battle against the flesh. Now, friends, do not misunderstand me. I am not saying that the gospel does not change us. In fact, I think at the very heart of the gospel is that it must change us. Where there is no fruit of repentance, there is no true root of justifying grace. So I think part of what it means to be a Christian is not just being made alive by a sovereign God, but then necessarily to some degree bearing the fruit of repentance in your life. Change is absolutely a necessary consequence of true saving faith to some degree. That doesn't mean that we'll be perfect, but it means that to some degree, just like in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, Jesus says the result of this good soil is that it will bear fruit. Some will bear 30-fold, 60-fold, 90-fold, 100-fold. But the person who has truly been born again, regenerated by God's sovereign grace, as he's given them the gift of faith and repentance so that they can look away from themselves and look to Jesus, will to some degree change in their life. But we see even the greatest of people in the Bible, like Abraham, still wrestling with old patterns of sin. What should this do for us? Well, first of all, it should kind of strangely, we've, this has been a theme a lot, it should sort of strangely encourage us, not because we're rejoicing in Abraham, Abraham's sin, but it should humble us. And it should make us realize, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't have this sort of triumphalism in our life. Like, I'm past that. Listen to these words from my favorite Puritan, Richard Sibbs. Now, I, you thought I was going to say Charles Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon actually really wasn't a Puritan. He, the time of the Puritans ended like in the late 1700s. Um, he quoted the Puritans a lot. Um, he was just a British cat in the 1800s with an awesome beard. That's all. That's all I, I mean, that's so much more I can say about Spurgeon. But, but, but my, my, my classical favorite Puritan, I, I've been influenced by a few people on this, uh, is Richard Sibbs. And he wrote my favorite little Puritan little paperback called The Bruised Reed. Oh, uh, so full of warm, uh, just encouraging gospel truth. Listen to what he says about, about how we should be a sort of a, a group of people as a local church and as Christians that are just like humble people, humbled by the fact that we still deal with junk occasionally and that we're in this, this group of pardoned rebels, right, who are all still prone you know, we all need each other to keep our eyes on Jesus. Not to act like we're past anything, but to keep our eyes on Jesus. Listen to uh, the heavenly doctor, as they called him, Richard Sibbs. The Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that's, a, that's us, by the way. We are smoky, offensive souls. Oh, that the Spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful disposition. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The church of Christ, I love this sentence, the church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom 
and meekness. Oh, friends, isn't that a beautiful truth? As we look at Abraham, it should cause us to be humble about our own sin, not acting like we're past stuff, and it should cause us to have great grace for people around us. Friends, we should not be shocked at one another's sin. We should be shocked at the extravagant grace of God and long-suffering with one another in our sin. He goes on. We don't have this on the screen, but I'm just, I just read this as I was sitting down there just a few minutes ago, and I didn't give it to the guys beforehand, so I'm sorry about that, but this was so good, I just got to read just a tad bit more. And further, let us take to ourselves the condition of him with whom we deal. Imagine if a church grabbed a hold of this spirit. We are, or have been, or may be in that condition ourselves. Let us make the case our own and also consider in what near relation of Christian stands to us, even as a brother, a fellow member, heir of the same salvation. And therefore, let us take upon ourselves a tender care of them in every way and especially in cherishing the peace of their consciences. So when we read about the folly of the great man Abraham, it should strangely encourage us about our ongoing battle with the flesh and sin, and it should humble us as we look horizontally in the body of Christ. And when we see somebody else doing something stupid, we shouldn't pick up the phone and say, oh my gosh, did you see what Joe did? It should cause us to be like Sibs. This encourage us to be, oh, 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 how can I pray for and help and encourage that person? Boy, uh, may we be revolutionized by that sort of gospel-centered community. And then finally, what we learn about ourselves is that we are prone to see people as big and God as small. We're prone to see people as big and God is small. Remember the situation now. Abraham has been rescued time and time again by God. God has showed himself faithful and big and large and powerful. And this time in Genesis 20, Abraham finds himself in another potentially dangerous situation. So instead of remembering what God has done in the past and the greatness and the glory and the promise and the certainty of God on his behalf, he lets the temporary person and situation of this king become like a giant in front of him. And God becomes tiny on the horizon. Another book I'd recommend to you is this book by Ed Welch. He's a Christian counselor up in Philadelphia. And he wrote a wonderful book called When People Are Big and God is Small. Overcoming Peer Pressure, Codependency, and the Fear of Man. Let me just read a little bit out of this. Don't have it on the screen, but let me just read a little bit about... Because, see, I don't think any of you are wandering around as nomads in the desert with your wife and livestock, and are scared about a Bedouin, you know, king out there. And I don't think any of you have particularly been tempted to lie because of the physical safety of you wandering through the desert about your spouse. But, maybe, maybe that's the case. I mean, one of you might, no, Brad, I mean, back in 1982, I was working for National Geographic. And, I mean, whatever, okay, fine. <laughs> but maybe, maybe, unlike a king in a desert, maybe you're prone like I am to just make the current situation that you're facing like humongous. And we just are so quick to forget about God. And we're so governed by the opinion of others around us. What will people think? Listen to Ed Welch's counsel about our timid, scared, fearful of man hearts. He said, it is true what or who you need will control you. Have you ever struggled with peer pressure? Peer pressure is simply a euphemism for the fear of man. Are you overcommitted, the type of person that can't say no? Do you find it hard to say no even when wisdom indicates that you should? You may, may very well be a people pleaser. Another phrase for the fear of man. Is self-esteem a critical concern for you? This, at least in the United States, is the most popular way that the fear of other people is expressed. If self-esteem is a recurring theme for you, chances are that your life revolves around what others think. Do you ever feel as if you might be exposed as an imposter? 
The sense of being exposed is an expression of the fear of man. Are you always second-guessing decisions? Oh, young leaders, listen to this. I found this convicting, so convicting. Are you always second-guessing decisions because of what other people might think? Are you afraid of making mistakes that will make you look bad in other people's eyes? You struggle with the fear of man. Do you get easily embarrassed? Embarrassed. If so, people and their perceived opinions probably define you. Do you ever lie? Especially the little white lies. What about cover-ups where you're not technically lying with your mouth? Lying and other forms of living in the dark are usually ways to make ourselves look better before other people. Are you jealous of other people? If so, you are controlled by them and their possessions. Do other people often make you angry or depressed? Are they making you crazy? If so, they are probably the controlling center of your life. Do you avoid people? Even so, if so, even though you might not say that, you need them. You're controlled by them. Isn't a hermit dominated by the fear of man? Oh, friends, I could go on, but I don't want to wreck your afternoon. (laughs) Friends, just let's admit it. Now, we may not be journeying through the Negev and happen upon a hostile-looking king and are fearful of our physical safety. No, friends, in modern-day America in 2014, our fears are much more subtle and maybe much more potentially dangerous because they're harder to spot. But Abraham's problem, like our problem today, is we are prone to make people and circumstances big and God small. What's the answer to that? Oh, let's repent. Let's repent like David did in Psalm 51. Let's learn that about ourselves and say, God, why in my history with you am I still, still shrinking you down into the tiniest little font and magnifying this current situation I'm dealing with as if it's the only thing in the world? Oh, repent of that. Turn to God and trust in Christ and find shelter. Second question, what do we learn about God? Well, we learn, as we've learned through these past eight chapters with Abraham, that he is patient with and uses his people despite their folly. Oh, this is so encouraging. Friends, if you have been convicted by what you've learned about yourself, you may be convicted, but friends, that is the fatherly care of God. Hebrews 12 says that he chastens those whom he loves. And that conviction is not meant to disqualify you, but to bring you back in a right view of who God is. And God, in his patient, providential kindness, doesn't cast Abraham aside, but then he actually then insists that the only way that the situation is going to be restored is by saying, Abraham, now you've got to pray for Abimelech. I mean, wouldn't it have been a little bit easier? Come on, we just hate confrontation and awkward situations in America. I mean, you got this little dust up in the desert. Abraham, the called man of God, the father of God's people, promised to be the man through which God blesses the world, has this really regrettable, embarrassing moment. Let's just come on, it's embarrassing. For the second time, Abraham, you've lied about Sarah being your wife. Abimelech, couldn't we just, couldn't we just like, oh gosh, couldn't God just say, Abraham, ugh. All right, Abimelech, go away. Abraham, let's try this again. No, God doesn't work like that. He says, did you notice that? That he tells Abimelech, now go to Abraham, give him his wife back, and he's going to be the one that prays for you. I mean, how awkward and embarrassing and, oh, must that have been? Couldn't it have just, I mean, can you imagine them looking at each other? Couldn't it have just been like, oh, gosh, I'd really mess that one up. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I'm the guy that God called. Yeah, I almost got you killed because of my cowardice. Ugh. But God forces that, that moment there where God uses the foolish Abraham to bring about his promise and providence. Friends, I, I just find that incredibly encouraging. The second thing that we learn about God is that he will bring his plans to pass. Friends, he will bring his plans to pass. God in Genesis 12, promised Abraham 
that through him he would bring a nation. And God is now even right on the cusp of fulfilling that promise, even despite Abraham's folly and foolishness and weakness and cowardice and lack of faith, God is guaranteeing that his promise and his plan will come to pass. An application for us, friends, is as we look at the world around us. Let's not, I talked about this last week, let's not be like Chicken Little, acting like the world is falling apart and God is just sort of distant. Friends, the world is a mess. There's no doubt about it. But remember that God is in utter control. Listen to this confession of a pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 4, after Daniel interpreted his dream and said, basically, that if you don't repent, God's going to cut you down like the tree that he cut down in your dream. Listen to Daniel chapter 4. This is Nebuchadnezzar's confession of this sovereign God who will bring his plans to pass. Daniel 4, 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay It's a way of saying stop. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, take heart. No wicked government. No hostile nation in the Middle East. No selfish group of people on Wall Street. No weather pattern in the Gulf. Nothing slips past God's sovereign plan to bring this world to a place where redemption is complete and his kingdom is consummated. Take heart and comfort in that. And then number three here, what we learn about God. Let's, let's zero in on this and make this global 30,000 foot sort of truth. Let's personalize it. Not only will he bring his plan to pass, but number three, he sovereignly intervenes in our lives. So he wakes Abimelech up and he says to Abimelech, don't do this, don't touch her. If you do, I'm going to kill you. And Abimelech, I mean, again, you talk about a jolt of adrenaline. Ah, ah. I mean, I've been woken up in the middle of the night by, you know, a kid standing over me. That's scary enough right there. I remember when our kids had trouble sleeping. Ah, you know. Imagine being woken up by God, saying, don't touch her, I'm going to kill you. And listen to verse 6 again. What I said was a very important verse in Genesis. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart. Listen to this now. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, God is not bound to always work this way. But friends, know that God, whenever he pleases, whenever he pleases, breaks into his creation and intervenes for his purposes and the good of his promise and his people. He, friends, this is something, a category, a doctrine of God that you need to entrench in your hearts. God has authority over people. He has authority over our will. He has authority over sin. He can stop it from happening. He he can break into and do whatever he wants. Nobody was praying for this. There wasn't a group of people that God was beholden to that if you will hit the faith meter high enough, then I can move. There wasn't a group of people that were fasting and praying and giving and doing all these things, although those things are wonderfully important to do. I'm not minimizing that at all. But God is not bound. God is not restrained. God does whatever he pleases, and he breaks in and stops Abimelech from sinning. Friends, this is incredibly important because that's the way God saved you and me. No, we weren't a desert king about to take another man's wife for ours, but we were all on our way to rebelling against God, and God broke 
into our lives because of his sovereign power and stopped us from the sin, the most egregious sin of all, which is unbelief. He stopped us from it. He spoke to us. He gave us eyes to see, a heart to believe, ears to hear, so that we then can turn away from ourselves, which is repentance and our sin and our continuing unbelief, and turn in faith to Jesus. Friends, the fact that God intervenes as he pleases is at the very heart of the gospel. God intervenes. If you're a Christian today, it's not because you figured it out or because you were born here or there or because you had more smarts than the other guy or because you're not as bad as some cat down the street. It is because God broke into your life and stopped you from continuing in your sin of unbelief. Praise God for this. Praise God for this. And then thirdly, the third question, what do we learn about God's plan of redemption in Christ? Well, I think it's just one thing. I'm sure there's many, but one thing here I'd like us to meditate on and close on. One thing we learn about this unfolding plan of redemption. Remember, the Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. The New Testament is pointing back to Christ. What I think we learn is we look at the whole course of Abraham's life, and again, another Another episode of folly is that as great as Abraham was, we need a mediator greater than Abraham. We need Jesus. In fact, friends, I think that's the whole story of these great men in the Old Testament. Abraham becomes this this mediator between God and his people, but he ultimately fails. David becomes this, this great king for God's people, but, but he fails. Moses becomes this, this great deliverer, but he's imperfect. He, he fails. These prophets are these great speakers of God's truth, but ultimately they're flawed. And one of the great points of the Old Testament, one of the great lessons of, of the life of Abraham is that as great as these people were, we need somebody greater than these Old Testament priests and kings and prophets and mediators. We need somebody outside of ourselves. We need not just a man. We need the God-man, Christ Jesus. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, and we'll conclude with this, and, and we'll see two brothers be baptized and confess this very truth. For there is one God, And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, friends, we we are all like Abimelech. We are all like Sodom and Gomorrah. We are all like Lot. We have been taken captive by a wicked world. And we ourselves are wicked. And we are on the course of marching in rebellion towards God and sinning. But we need somebody better than Abraham. Somebody who won't be caught up in their own folly. Somebody completely unlike us. We need a mediator. We need God himself to intercede for us to substitute himself in our place. And because Jesus is not just man, he is also fully God. He is more than able to absorb the punishment, the judgment, the wrath that should be ours. And Jesus takes our place, stands between the holy righteous father and his brother's people, and he becomes our mediator. And friends, that's the heart of the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to improve yourself, not to commit to doing better, not a six months plan to do this or that. Again, as wonderful as those things may be, what it means to be a person of God, to be a Christian, what the gospel is, is that we need help. We need to be rescued by the only one who can rescue us because we are just like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're just like Abimelech. We're just like Lot. We're just like Abraham. We need a Savior, the man Christ Jesus. Friends, are you even sensing that right now, that that is the case in your life? Do you realize 
that God very well may be intervening right now and stopping you from continuing in unbelief? Praise God for that. Don't think about all the things that you need to do now. Look away from yourself and look to Jesus. He's stopping you from continuing in your unbelief. Are you a Christian? Oh, friends, revel in this truth. Let it humble you. Let it produce in you a mercy towards others around you and worship God more passionately. Well, two brothers in just a moment are coming to be baptized to display and symbolize this truth that they have trusted in Christ in their own lives. As they do that, we will celebrate the gospel together and then respond in worship. Let's pray and ask the Lord to speak. Father, as we come now to respond to these words that you have written for us, as we hear the testimonies of changed lives, the testimonies of your grace in the lives of these two brothers, let it simultaneously encourage and compel us. For the person that's in this room that has not yet trusted in Jesus, and they thought that the thing that they needed to do was to do better in some way, Lord, I pray that you would show them that that's impossible in and of themselves. And their only hope is you sovereignly intervening in their lives. And if they are even becoming aware of that right now, I I believe, Lord, that that's, that's great evidence that you're doing that for them right now. Because you delight in saving. You delight in stopping us from continuing in our unbelief. So, Lord, if there's a person in this room who is in that place that is realizing that, Lord, would they turn away from themselves and would they turn in faith and trust towards Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, the only true sufficient mediator? God, would you do that? And then as we hear the gospel read and proclaimed and symbolized in baptism, would we revel in the gospel? And I pray these things. In Jesus' name, amen.